So let me pray, and then we'll dive in. Jesus, oh man, this morning I just recognize that, Lord, I am not enough. And Jesus, that these words are not enough. And in so many ways, I am unworthy to expound upon your word. To even be up here is, is ridiculous. And so, God, right now I'm asking you that your spirit, that your spirit would make up the difference. That, Lord, that your spirit would cover all my weaknesses and failings. And that, Jesus, that even now the words that I speak, that as they leave my lips, that somehow, Holy Spirit, you would transform them to be exactly what the listener needs to hear at this time. God, I just want to see you. I just want you to be glorified and for you to be honored. And so this is my offering to you, Lord. Would you take it? May it be pleasing to you. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Cool. So as I mentioned earlier, I am probably the most like conflict-avoidant person that you will ever meet. Like, it's serious. Like, if a conversation unexpectedly goes south, I'm like, nope, like my body like clenches up, like I get sick to my stomach. Who in you in here are like, yeah, I love conflict, like I'm about that. If conflict goes down, let's go, you know? And then who are, kind of flip side, who are the people who are like, conflict goes out, let's go, like I'm out, like <laughs> yes, my people, I'm with you. Um, that is definitely me. And so I was thinking about this passage, and I was reminded of this time when uh, I was a student at the University of Tampa at the time. UT, where you at? Yep, yep, yep. UT University, I see you. And so I was a resident assistant, and I was living in Urso at the time. And I was walking back to Urso. Is somebody Urso? Urso people? No, it's no longer Urso, right? It's, it's still called Urso. Okay, but no one's it. Yeah, that's kind of the bougie dorm. Um, if you got money, you stay in Urso. But anyway, that's not why I was in Urso, in case you're wondering. But anyway, I was walking back to my dorm, and at the, at the corner of where Urso is located, there was this guy that was just standing there. And he was kind of out of place. He was weird, but he was just kind of sitting there. He was just kind of hanging out, like wasn't going anywhere. And what would happen is that people would walk past him, and as he, they were walking past him, he would hand them this little slip of paper. And he would just hand it out, and they would kind of look at it as they're going to their rooms, and they would look at their friends and be like, what is this? Like, what's going on? And uh, eventually, it comes my turn to walk across the street. And kind of in fashion, he hands me this slip of paper. And I'm looking at it, and it's all about, like, the end of the world, apocalypse, wrath of God. Like, there's, like, scripture, like, God is going to burn his enemies and all this other stuff. And I'm like, oh, my word. Like, this dude that we have no idea who he is, is on my campus, on the place that I am doing ministry at, that my whole chapter is doing ministry at, and he's, he's like damaging our witness. Like, what the heck is going on here? So I'm like thinking, okay, well, what am I going to do? Like, I, I, I feel a kind of way about this, but at the same time, I hate conflict. This is like tension in me, but I feel like I have to do something. So I like drop my stuff off at my dorm, I go back down, and I'm like, well, in the most diplomatic way possible, I'm just going to tell this dude to get lost, right? Um, 
I'm a two. Is what we that's what we do. We want to help you in the most in the most loving way possible. Um, and so I go up to him, and I don't remember what I said. I probably just say, "Hey, man, I'm a Christian doing ministry here on this campus. Just yeah, like what are you what are you doing here? You know, like not to like. I'm just curious. Like, what about your methods? Like, does this actually work? Like, what's going on? And we get into, he starts talking about the sin that's on my campus. He's like, well, the women, I see them wearing this because it's always women, right? Like, guys, 2019, we got we to do better. Um, toxic masculinity tomorrow. You should be there. Um, but anyway, so we start going back and forth. And, and, you know, 15 minutes go by, 30 minutes go by, an hour goes by. Like, we are talking for an hour and a half, maybe even two hours, going back and forth about evangelism tactics and what does it actually mean to be saved and does God love Muslims the same way that he loves Christians? And it's like intense, right? Like going on and on and on and on. And, you know, I look at this passage and I see kind of the same thing. This huge fight breaks out in the church. And it's such a big fight, in fact, that Paul and Barnabas They're like, no, we can't even answer this here. Like, we have to go to higher authority, higher than us. Like, we're going to actually take this question with some believers, and we're going back to the head of this whole thing, and we're going to ask them, okay, let's settle this issue once and for all. What's the deal? Do they have to be circumcised? Do they not have to be circumcised? What's going on? And I love the fact that it says, like, these certain people, this random group of certain people. In this whole passage, like, there's names everywhere. There's Paul, there's Barnabas, James, Peter, uh, the, the apostles, the, the elders. And yet this random group of certain people, right? Like, maybe, you know, Luke's trying to tell us it actually doesn't matter who these people are as much as it's, it's the conflict that's, that's going on right here. He doesn't want us to get sidetracked from the, the debate that's happening. And, you know, maybe if there's, there's one thing that we could say, if there's like one whole big idea that I'm working with for this passage, and we'll get back to the Urso guy in a second. But it's this idea that, you know, we are saved by grace through faith without restrictions. And yet we embrace certain restrictions, discerned with Jesus, and in submission to accountability in order to preserve our witness. So going back to this passage, you know, in light of Acts 11 in the story of Peter and Cornelius, this should have been a done deal. And so I can just imagine the frustration with me that Paul and Barnabas must have felt having these people come in, right? Like, you are the church at Antioch. You are this Holy Spirit, multi-ethnic community. Not only that, you guys, like, practically invented the word Christian. Like, you were Christian before it was cool to call yourself a Christian, right? Like, you started that trend. And yet, here are some people who are like, nope, all invalid, because you are not circumcised. Like, who do you think you are? Like, those are fighting words. Like, imagine, this is, and this happens, right? As you people, who, you people, not you people, you people. (laughs) Name that movie. Name that movie, Anger Management? No? Okay, anyway. Uh, sorry, that's not in the notes. <laughs> but uh, so just imagine, imagine that. Like, and this happens to you guys as microchurch leaders. Like, people come up to you, and this kind of goes back to what George is talking about. Be, like, you didn't go to seminary. You're not a pastor. So what are you actually doing in ministry? What? You were baptized at Jesus Encounter in a bathtub? Someone just poured water over your head? 
you weren't some you weren't immersed you weren't actually baptized you know, oh what you're you're women in leadership but there's no men that send you out that you're covering that's not valid it's like who do you think you are do you not see the spirit of god at work here in this place are you that blind like if anyone should have been like zealous for the law or serious about the law, it should have been Paul. And Paul is like a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. And yet even Paul himself is like, no. And it's not like Paul's just like, nope, I, I, don't, I don't feel like it's a, it's a good idea. Paul is passionate about this. If you've never read the book of Galatians, Paul says, I wish the circumcised would go ahead and emasculate themselves entirely. That's his words, not mine. <laughs> Conflict avoidant, remember. Galatians 5:12. Look it up. Um, just so you think I'm not a heretic. Like if he wasn't a Christian, he probably would have laid some holy hands on some folks, and not just in prayer. You know, it would have gone down. But it's such a heated subject that it goes to Jerusalem, and even Jerusalem is divided on it. Right? Immediately the Pharisees are like, "He, they should be circumcised," and Peter's like, "Divine attestation." Like. God has done something in them, right? And James is appealing to scripture. And in a way, it's almost like the first board meeting, right? Like there's field staff going to the, whatever, the board saying, this is an issue, here's a report, these are all the things that God is doing. The board makes a decision, they come up with a policy, and they send that out to the churches, all that fun stuff, governance, hashtag. Um, But there's this decision that gets made that stands for all the church and all time that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ without conditions, without restrictions. And yet the fact that there is a process for disagreement, that there is a process to handle these issues where we don't necessarily know how to navigate. Paul himself is a man in submission to authority. Right? So it's like Paul, church planter extraordinaire, writes half of the books in the New Testament. You know, he himself says, actually, I go to someone else. I report to someone else. Antioch, this amazing church, does not stand alone. It belongs to this bigger body. And I think there's a question in there for us. Just who are we accountable to? As individuals, not just like, yes, you're microchurch too, but as individuals, who are you accountable to? When things go down in your microchurch, who do you call? Who gets to be the final authority? What is the process of disagreement in your microchurch? Or do you even know the process of disagreement within the underground? There is a process of dissent. Like, you can actually go to leaders and say, hey, I actually disagree with you on this. And you can talk it out. You can discuss it. We are not infallible. We are not invincible. We can go off the rails. And if there's no one to step in, what does that mean for our walk with Jesus? What does that mean for our personal lives? What does that mean for our ministries? You know, it wasn't uncommon in synagogues to have some sort of local leader that you went to. And similar, that's what we see here, that you had your local leaders. Maybe that would have been Paul and Barnabas. They would have been the local leaders. But then even them themselves, they have a higher authority that they appeal to. And there is room for disagreement. 
you know, going back to, to talking about InterVarsity, you know, for staff, I don't know if I'm actually allowed to say this. InterVarsity, I hope you're not watching, um, aside from the students that are here. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, there is this whole issue that got raised with InterVarsity for a while back. Maybe some of you remember it, surrounding human sexuality and our biblical stance on sexuality. And, and it was a whole question of, like, you know, what do we say about same-sex attraction and all this stuff? Because, you know, maybe at one point there is a, a unified evangelical voice, if you could say that. I mean, it's been a, a question for decades. But it was changing, and, and culture was changing, and things were changing, and InterVarsity had to define its stance on this. And so what InterVarsity said was, okay, well, what we're going to do is, as an organization, we are going to look at the Word of God, and we're going to discuss it in regions with supervisors and all this. And we're going to spend a year a whole year looking at this issue, and then at the end, we're going to have this decision that's made. And we're going to come up with in-house documents and how you're supposed to go forward. And they said, well, if you disagree, in the event that we get to the end of this and we can't reach some sort of like unanimous conclusion between me and you, well, then we ask that you do the spiritually right, integrity, honest thing, that you would leave. Right? And so some people left because they disagreed with InterVarsity's stance. Some people left because they disagreed with InterVarsity's decision to impose that on staff, to say, like, this is what you have to believe. There's, like, a whole question of, well, what's next? Some people stayed because they agreed. And then some people stayed because, even though they disagreed, they recognized, man, I am actually in submission to this organization. This is what it means to work for InterVarsity. I, I, I may not disagree, but I trust it. And I trust you guys. And, you know, there was a whole time period where, like, I think a bunch of InterVarsity press, people who had published through IVP had sent out uh, an open letter to InterVarsity saying, hey, we can't believe you're doing this. And so that was fun. Imagine that. Your spiritual hero is writing an, a letter to your organization saying, nope, we disagree. Uh, but there's room for that. There's room for disagreement. In fact, going back to the guy at Ursa, the, the, the way, you know how that whole thing resolved? There just so happened to be a pastor walking down the street who overhears our conversation. And he pulls out a Bible and he says, well, look at here in Jude. Jude said there's room for both mercy and for fear. You're both right. All right, peace out. And he walks across the street. And I'm like, all right. And that's what third parties do. Right In those moments where we are at odds with each other, where we actually don't know who's right and who's wrong, we need an outside voice who is not invested in that conversation to say, here is truth. I hate this conversation as much as you do. Like, this is the most unpunk rock thing to talk about, submitting to authority. Like, that goes against everything teenage me believes in, right? Like, teenage me is like, rebel against the system. And yet we can't, because if we're honest, it's entirely too tempting to take the God who made us in his image and return the favor. To say, okay, God, this is what I like, so that's, that's what's what you like. And this is what I dislike, and this, so that's what you dislike. But guys, if God loves all the same things that we love and hates all the same things that we hate, really, we've just made ourselves God and painted a different name on it. God delights in shattering the illusions that we have about him. 
The beautiful thing about the missionary life is that you will encounter things that just are unexpected. Like there are things that you just don't know that you don't know, right? And you won't know until you get there. But with that, you need people who will kind of help you interpret and figure out what this means in terms of scripture and God. Not saying that they're going to they're get it right 100% of the time. We don't, we don't follow Jesus because we agree with him 100% of the time. We just know that we're wrong. And so we keep going. That's why we have elders. That's why our elders have governing elders. Because ministry, as great as it is, is messy. And occasionally discipline is needed. Sometimes we have to define our positions And we need outside people to speak into that. But not just is this a question about, you know, governance and polity and all those big SAT words, disagreements and how we handle them. But this is a matter of of salvation, right? I love that the first disagreement that the church has is what does it actually mean to be saved? In light of the law or in light of this new covenant, what does that mean for us? And it's an understandable question. Imagine yourself as a Pharisee. You've given your whole life to this thing. You have studied law like nobody's business. And you've actually gone back and forth about the the, the minutia of the law. What actually constitutes rest? What isn't Sabbath? Uh, can Can you carry your sheep this far before it's, you know, no longer rest? That's your life. And all of a sudden, here's this whole group of people who've never experienced that, all of a sudden saying, yep, we're in with you. It's like, excuse me? We, we are not the same. We, we are not the same people. And there was this, there was, this is what the debate is about. Like, you know, some people were of the belief that all you had to do was follow the seven laws given to Noah. Some people were of the belief that, you know, you had to get circumcised and baptized in order to, to become, you know, Jewish first and then Christian. Like, there was a whole question about that. And we get it. It's all that they've ever known. And even if the system is inefficient, there are still people who are, are, are benefiting from it, right? And so they have stakes in it. They don't want to change it. What's interesting to me is that even those people that would have said, yeah, you can have, you know, follow the seven laws of Noah and you can be saved. You don't actually have to convert. They still wouldn't have believed necessarily that those two groups, like, yeah, you could be saved, but you wouldn't be included in Israel, You'd, still, you'd be some like separate category, like one of us, but not exactly. It's Luke 15 all over again. But the second we try to add something to the grace of God, we've fallen back into law. We've nullified, we've denigrated the cross of Christ. And we said that his blood actually is not enough. It is by grace that we are saved, through faith. It's not from ourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. And when we put up barriers between God and his people, the objects of his affection, we put ourselves in the company of the enemy. And God will contend with you. It's a question of salvation, but it's also a matter of control. Like, if you don't look like me, how do I actually know you're saved? And this is a question I had to wrestle with and came in. If I'm honest, I'm tempted to add things to the gospel. You know, before I left K-Man, people who know me and knew me before K-Man can attest to this. Like, I 
wore clothes that were way too big for me uh, and never cut my hair and like whatever, ate off of the, McDo the McDonald's dollar menu. And some of that had something to, not to say that you can't do that, but there's part of me that was like a broke student turned broke missionary. And so it was all I could really afford. But then part of me also kind of justified it underneath being a good Christian, right? Like, oh, if you're a good Christian, you don't spend a whole lot of money on, on all this stuff. You just give it all away. You don't actually own things that you want. You give that stuff to the poor. So you get left with like a garbage bag, right? Like St. Francis of Assisi type of deal. Um, that's what it means to be a good Christian. And so if you have money and like, what does that mean for you? Like, that's just kind of weird. You know, and it was just bad theology, as if taking care of your body isn't also honoring to God. Um, like, just, just stupid. Like, I, good heart, good heart, but try again. Uh, and so, you know, earlier I mentioned that I was uh, in Cayman. Oh, man, I need to hurry up. I was in Cayman, and, uh, you know, Cayman, as wonderful as it was to do ministry there, it was hard at times. Because, as I mentioned earlier, I was a part of InterVarsity. That's how I came to faith. And so I can point to a very clear moment in time where I said, actually, I'm not a Christian and I'm becoming a Christian. Like, I'm stepping into, entering into the kingdom. And so imagine, like, because of that, I get along a lot better with non-Christians, people who are new believers, because we share that same collective experience. So I get to Cayman, and Cayman, Christianity is just part of the culture, like Psalm 24.2 is on the coat of arms. And if you talk to students, they say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. I believe in God. And you can see the problems with that theologically and philosophically, but they, it, it just sounds like the same thing, right? And so you have these conversations, and I'm asking them, you know, when did you give your life to Jesus? They're like, what are you talking about? I was, I've always been a Christian. I was born Christian. And you know that actually that's not a thing. Like, God does not have grandchildren. Like, you are, not, <laughs> you are not saved because your parents are saved, right? Like, you know that. And yet, we would have these conversations. I just had no idea what to say. And I'm like, man, what does it actually mean to be a Christian in Cayman? And maybe if more people were there with me to help me contextualize, I would have had an answer. But I didn't have one. Uh, and so it was just kind of a quandary. Right? Like, what does it mean to be a real, authentic Christian? And maybe, I don't know, maybe in the same way that we talked about a few weeks ago, that the gospel speaks to every culture, every language, every place, in all times, uh, maybe genuine Christian experience also varies and expresses itself differently in all places, in all times. And we have to be mature enough to do the contextualizing work. Because when we put up barriers and make requirements to say that, you know, this is what it means to be Christian, that our expression must be similar, uh, we are essentially propagators of the franchise faith that makes no room for the diversity of God. The gospel is a seed. Culture and context is its soil. And when you plant it there, it blooms something that's unique and different. It might be the same plant. It will look the same. But its nuances will be different. And that's beautiful. And part of maturity and being a part of the family is learning how to deal with that. To say, yep, that's what it means to be a Christian in Cayman. That's what it means to be a Christian in America. That's what it means to be a Christian at UT. And to say, this is all a part of the family of God. 
The grace of God leaves room for diversity and creativity and authentic Christian expression because there is no one prescribed way of doing things. It's a shift from behaviors to values. You know, when you have kids, you tell them don't run with scissors. When you get older, when your kids get older, yeah, you'd probably, I mean, if you have to tell them don't run with scissors at whatever, 16, that's something that reflects immaturity on them, right? Because actually what you want them to do is to value safety. And so it's like safety isn't just not running with scissors. It's more than that. It's you should probably also watch your speed limit when you drive. Uh, you should not do all these other things, but you're not going to go into minutia anymore because of maturity. And I would have those conversations with students in Cayman all the time. They'd ask me, oh, can we eat pork? Is it, you know, uh, can we wear pants or do we have to wear skirts? Is it, can we not go to this thing? Can we go to this thing? And I'm like, you're just missing the forest for the trees. Because you can do all those things, but if you don't actually understand the grace of God, Jesus' lordship in your life, then, then you will never actually grow as a disciple. If you actually knew the grace of God, you wouldn't ask that question. I actually can't tell you what to do. I can tell you this is what it means for Jesus to be Lord, and you yourself have to ask that question. Maybe it looks different. Maybe it's like, yes, you do go to this party, but you do something completely different than the way that everyone else is behaving around you. Maybe it looks like, actually, I know myself, and actually the right, wise thing for me to do is to not go to that party. Grace doesn't dictate behaviors. It gives us values, and those values shape behaviors. And this is the nuance, that we are essentially saved by grace without restrictions, and yet at the same time we embrace restrictions because of the grace that we've been given, but also because of our missionary witness. And worship team, you can come back up if you are so privy. I'll land this plane and we can get out of here. There's no football. <laughs> Super Bowl's over. But it's still it's like... You got stuff. You got kids. You got lunch. But yeah, what's interesting to me is that James, going back to what we were talking about earlier, says that while Gentiles don't need to be circumcised, he doesn't completely allow them to do whatever they want. They're still to stay away from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, meat strangled from by strangled animals, blood all this other stuff. And these, those things are representative of the ceremonial and moral laws that would have come from the laws of Noah. They were not to participate, essentially, in pagan worship. Like, that was just, they were not supposed to do that. Um, and not only would this have been good for their own spiritual welfare, but it's also a missionary decision to actually, because... The law of Moses was preached everywhere. If you would have conducted yourself in that way, not only would that have been damaging to your own spiritual faith, but it would have been offensive to the people around you. Like you actually would not be able to be a missionary to those people if you engaged in those behaviors. And so James's decision here essentially is no needful circumcision, but also no needful offense. Like, don't be offensive, guys. While grace doesn't necessarily dictate behavior, it should motivate our actions. He tells them to restrict themselves, not because their salvation depends on it necessarily, but because it's part of their witness. 
And to me, that's where it gets fun. You get to dream of ways that you get to be different from the world around you. How is God convicting you? I can't tell you how to be generous. Just that you should. You know, maybe that for some of you, that's tithing. That's cool, 10%. But then for some people, it looks like the opposite. It looks like giving away 90% and keeping 10. And that's cool. Right? I can't tell you how to love the poor or what that means for you. I can't even define the poor for you. You have to define that. Scripture has to define that for you. Community has to define that with you. You know, I didn't ask him about this, so this is going to get me in trouble. Sorry, Creed. But um, I just think about Creed. And if you know Creed, Creed, every time you talk to Creed, Creed's got a story to tell you, man. Like, Creed is just that guy, um, a force to be reckoned with. And so, uh, yeah, you know, Creed was helping us, you know, with a, a mattress because we just recently moved into the Ebor house and uh, there's a whole room that just has nothing. And we had guests coming in for movement school and for encounter and we needed beds. And just so it happened, Telford House had like an abundance of mattresses. Um, and so Creed was kind enough to bring it over to help move it into our place. And, uh, you know, he's moving it in and we're moving it in. And he's like, yeah, you know, today's just been a really interesting day. Like, I just got a story for you, man. And, you know, he starts telling me about his neighbors and his neighborhood. And, you know, there was some stuff like he's got drug dealer friends and friends who like, oh, his drug dealer friends money. And they're like, we got to find this dude. And when we find him, like if he doesn't pay up, we're going to mess him up. And Creed's like, and they're like, they're going to Creed because they're like, look, we know that you're not into all this stuff. But, you know, we know that you're friends with him. So could you talk to him? Could you like get him to do something? And Creed's like, yeah, but could you also, like, extend grace? Like, could you, like, not kill this dude? Like, that'd be nice. Like, could you just, like, wait a little bit longer? Like, I know you got stuff going on, and you probably report to some other people, but, like, please, you know? And so Creed and I, he's, like, telling me this story, and he's like, can we just pray? Can we just pray that God would move in this situation? And we pray and we, you know, we're crying out to God that God would somehow move in the situation that this guy would not die uh, because of some stupid decisions that he's made. And then Creed, you know, goes home, deals with the situation, messages me, says, you know, by the grace of God, nothing's going to happen. He's going to be totally cool with this dude. Like he's going to give him some time. We're working through it and all this other stuff. But I'm just thinking like, how in the world? Did you gain that kind of respect and authority? That like people in your neighborhood know that you're a Christian, they are drug dealers, that you guys actually have no connection to each other. And yet because of your witness, your life, they respect your word. And they say, you know what? I was gonna hurt this dude, but because you told me not to, but because you stand for something different, I step back. Guys, I think we try too hard sometimes to fit into the world when we're meant to stand out and be different. Like, you have to be wise about this. There is a way that, like, the gospel makes a difference in a life. 
And you have to figure out what that means for you. So like, yes, you can't be so removed from the world that they don't have a, a witness for what the gospel looks like. And yet you can't be so similar that there's no difference between you and them. Like you have to be different enough to where they respect you. And what is it about you in your life that onlookers look at and say, that's amazing. That's different. What is that about you? There are things that the gospel affirms. There are things that the gospel is silent towards. But then there's also things that the gospel challenges. And you have to be wise enough to know the difference. Sometimes our restrictions aren't a matter of what we're saved by, but they're conscious decisions to limit ourselves in order to further our witness. We are free, and yet that doesn't mean we live our lives any kind of way. Because we are free, we also give some of that freedom away. So this morning, as you come to the table and take the body and blood of Jesus, receiving his grace, we also say yes again to his lordship. It's not just that we're gaining, but we're also surrendering again, saying, God, this is your body, this is your blood. And I submit to the people that you've put in my life. You're also saying, you know, God, I I relinquish freedom. And I relinquish barriers that I put between people and you so that you can work in their lives. God, would you forgive me? This table is for the people who say yes again. We are saved by grace through faith without restrictions, yet we embrace restrictions, discerned with Jesus, and in submission to accountability in order to preserve our witness. We pray for us. Jesus. God, we want to be mature disciples. And we want to grow in wisdom and in stature and favor with both you and man. Sure, that's good. And God, we just open ourselves up to be in awe of you again, the way that we put you in boxes and are tempted to constrain you and say, this is the way that you always act and always move. And this is the only way that you can be, uh, I don't know, witnessed in people's lives. God, we invite you into those boxes to demolish those boxes. God, we say that we want you We want you, and we want to be faithful to you and to your word. So God, as we get ready to come to this table, I just pray that you would somehow move in the lives of people, that you would speak to them if there's a way that they need to surrender to you. Would you do that, God? If there's a way that they need to be affirmed in the the decisions and the choices that they've made, God, would you do that as well? he was betrayed he took the bread and he broke it saying this is my body broken for you 
when you eat it, you eat it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup, poured it out, saying, this cup is a new covenant shed for the forgiveness of sins. When you drink it, you drink it in remembrance of me. So this morning as we come to the table, we come remembering that there are no restrictions, there are no rules, there are no add-ons to the grace of God. We are saved by grace through faith, made possible by King Jesus on our behalf. And so we come and we remember that sacrifice, we remember that freedom, the power of that grace. And yet as we come away from the table and prayer ministry will be available and we worship, we remember that God has called us to love and that love in its nature is restrictive. And we just say, God, lead me into the restrictions. Lead me into the things I should abstain from. Not to know you, not to be close to you, not to be reconciled to you, not to be saved, but out of love to the people that you've called us to, called me to. So this morning, come. Let your rules go this morning. Let your restrictions go this morning. Let your add-ons go this morning. And come and receive and remember the power and the fullness and the sufficiency of the grace of God. This morning, underground, the elements given for you.